Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, October 26th, we're studying Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 1 to 26. Ezekiel concludes the word of the Lord against Tyre by speaking against the pride of their prince before he takes up an oracle against Sidon and then speaks the Lord's promise of restoration for Israel. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharp Iron. It's a blessing to be with you studying the Word today, Pastor Apple. As we get started this morning, Pastor Roth, let's talk a little bit of context. We've been talking about Tyre for a couple of episodes now. What should we know about what Ezekiel's already said, what he's been doing as he speaks against Tyre, as we prepare to look at his words there in chapter 28? All right, so Ezekiel was active from about 593 to 570 BC. So just to remind ourselves, 587 is when the Babylonians take Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And that actually is a, an important point of context with Tyre because they mocked the Israelites for their falling to Babylon. Um, and so it's in 573 that Ezekiel will see a vision of the new Jerusalem, but it'll it'll also still be quite a few years before the Israelites get to return in 538 when Cyrus decrees the return. So uh, the oracles against Tyre are from 26.1 to 28.19. And you can read the oracles in, as kind of a unit. So if you consider a kind of an ABAB structure, there's first an announcement of judgment upon Tyre in 26.1 to 21. Then there's the lament that the Lord tells Ezekiel to give over the fall of Tyre, 27.1 to 36. Now, today, we're going to look at the second AB announcement of judgment upon the king of Tyre in 28, 1-10, to followed by this lament over the fall of the king of Tyre in 28, 11-19. So we can see this, this section on Tyre as a sort of unit. Then we'll get a few verses toward the end of chapter 28 on Sidon, and you'll notice that in the New Testament, Tyre and Sidon usually pop up next to each other, and it's because they were located very close to each other. If I'm not mistaken, Sidon was first, and then uh, Tyre was founded afterward. But they're oftentimes kind of lumped together in this area of Phoenicia alongside the Mediterranean. In terms of the, the type of text that we're looking at, these what are sometimes called oracles against Gentiles or against oracles against nations. We've been in this for uh, several chapters now, and chapter 25 is where Ezekiel really begins this section. And with the various pastors who've helped us with these texts, we've, we've talked a little bit about why texts like these are challenging. And recently on Thy Strong Word, the other Bible study program here on KFUO, they had been looking at Leviticus, which is also a, a challenging type of literature for us as Christians. I'm just trying to, to get a feel for what the, the various pastors think. As you think about Leviticus and its challenges with the details of sacrifices and ceremonial laws, and the challenges of a, a text like this, an oracle against the nation, which has tons of historical detail, which do you find more challenging for Christians to use and apply today? Oh, boy. Uh, I think that um, probably equally difficult. Um, now, one thing you have to do with Leviticus is to read it through the lens of the book of Hebrews and, you know, Christ as the great high priest. So that helps a lot. 
So maybe one of the ways we should read these texts as is as Christ, the exalted king, who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. And so if we partition, and then also he's the great prophet. And in, the, and in you know, the Gospels, he actually will use Tyre and Sidon as this point of comparison for, look, it's going to be easier for them on the day of judgment than it will be for people who reject the kingdom that is now coming Christ. So I think that maybe through the lens of prophet, priest, and king, we can kind of approach these texts and recognize that they're part of God's plan all along, of course, fundamentally to preserve the Messianic kingdom so that, the, the, uh, that Christ could come and be the sacrificial priest and victim. He could uh, be the prophet who gives the full revelation of God's glory and God's kingdom, and he could be the king that rules uh, according to his uh, divine and human natures over the entire universe, according to his kingdom of glory, over the church, according to his kingdom of grace. And uh, I actually, uh, and then uh, let's see, what's the third one? I'm, I lost myself there. The kingdom of power. Did you say power? Oh, I meant power for glory, okay, right? So yeah. power is how he rules over the nations. Glory is the consummation of the kingdom. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. All right. So maybe that's a good way of approaching it. Okay. Well, well, we'll keep that in mind as we read today in, in Ezekiel chapter 28. So as you laid out the section for Tyre on us, again, in chapters 26 and 27, we saw the announcement of judgment upon Tyre as a whole. We've heard a lament over Tyre as a whole. And so today we're going to hear the announcement of judgment upon the king. That's verses 1 to 10. And then the lament over the king in verses 11 through 19. So we'll start with that first section. Ezekiel, and brief, could I ahead. briefly sure, go ahead. say one more thing? Um, I think uh, one thing we should keep in mind is, first of all, this, this is not just chauvinistic nationalism on the part of Israel, right? This is the Lord speaking through Ezekiel to make judgment upon these nations. And it can be read in a nationalistic sort of way, chauvinistic way, which, which is a misreading of the text, and I'm afraid that it has been read that way in some cases. But one thing we also should be attuned to is that this is a form of biblical satire. And if you think of Psalm 2, how the Lord... Uh, you know, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But how does the Lord respond? With mockery, with derision. He laughs at them. And that is, uh, you see this all over Isaiah and the other prophets, that they, they make fun of idolatry. And so one, one other way of reading this is kind of a satire of the folly of hubris um, and that, that, that humility is the way of true wisdom. Okay, so let's let's keep that in mind as well as we read this first section concerning the prince or the king of Tyre, Ezekiel 28, verses 1 to 10. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a god, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas. Yet you are but a man and no god, though you make your heart like the heart of a god. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth, and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a god, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a god, in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no god in the hands of those who slay you? You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hands of foreigners. 
for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. That's the first section of our text today, Ezekiel 28, verses 1 to 10. Pastor Roth, just thinking about this text as a whole, and going back to what you your comment right before we read it about thinking of this as a, a form of biblical satire, if in that case, seeing this as satire, is there is there a hint of sarcasm in the way that the Lord speaks about the wisdom, the understanding, and the wealth, as if he's the, the king is not truly wise, or, or is something else going on there? Actually, in that case, I don't think so. I think that these are genuine gifts that God has given to uh, the king, who, by the way, um, we're told his name is Ith- Ithobael, uh, which interestingly enough means Baal is with him. Hmm. So it's kind of like Emmanuel, except, yeah. right, you know, God with us, except Baal is with him. Um, I don't think we should belittle, and I don't think Ezekiel, or the Lord, I should say, <laughs> speaking through Ezekiel, is belittling the gifts. I think the problem is with the idolatry in the heart of this king that he has taken these God-given gifts and has turned them into his own possession as if he got these of himself. And then the fruits of those gifts he has used as kind of this proof that he's God-like. So I think the satire comes in when he's mocking the king's um, mortality and his, the fact that he's elevated himself to this status. But, I mean, can you just imagine him, you know, if uh, Ithobael having been captured by the Babylonians and he's about to be hung from a tree or about to have his head lopped off, how godlike are you now? Right. So there's this, it's not, it's not really humorous satire, right? It's just uh, this, this way of leveling a person and, and getting them to recognize uh, how mortal they are. So the the wealth and the wisdom that are talked about, say, in the first five verses of this text, and, and particularly in what we read in chapter 27, where the, the wealth of Tyre as, a, as the city is really described in great detail, those are good gifts of God. The problem with the wisdom, the wealth here for the prince or the king of Tyre is not that he has them, but that he's misusing them, taking pride in them, and elevating himself to a status that is not rightly his. Precisely. And it's a very common error, I think, even among modern Christians to say, you know, money is the root of all evil. Well, that's not true. I mean, it's a root of all sorts of evil because of people's hearts getting attached to it. But I think this text is actually one where we can point to and say, those who possess mammon are not inherently, um, you know, sinful or, or wrong. There's nothing wrong with possessing wealth. We saw plenty. We see plenty of people in the scriptures, God's people, who possess great wealth. Again, the key is how do you use it? Do you use it for self-glorification and as proof that you're godlike, or do you actually use it humbly for the good of others? And so, I think that's the key here. So, when it, the, if, then, if, I, if we're going to identify the verses here that really pinpoint the sin of the prince of Tyre, Ithabaal. That would be verse 2, where it says, your heart is proud, where we get this quote from him, and then sort of the the mirror image of that in verse 5, your heart has become proud in your wealth. The, the pride, that's really the, the center of this, this prince's sin. Exactly. And this is going to then be an exemplary uh, model of, of pride goeth before the fall. One of the things that stands out is verse 3, where his, as he's describing the wisdom that this prince has, he says he's wiser than Daniel. And this isn't the first time that Daniel has come up in the book of Ezekiel. 
that. Tell us a little bit about Daniel and his wisdom. Right. So um, Nebuchadnezzar had even said to Daniel, uh, no mystery is too difficult for you. So Daniel was blessed by God with this insight in which he could actually interpret dreams and be a great, well, he, he was elevated to a high status within the kingdom for his great wisdom. So much like Solomon before him, he has this God-given gift of wisdom. And I don't think the text is being um, cynical here. I mean, it. I think it seems that uh, Ithabel is actually even even more exalted and wiser than Daniel, according to his natural gifts that God has given him. And which is, is quite saying something. I think it, and this is a, a tangential issue to what the text itself is saying, but the fact that Ezekiel, or the Lord through Ezekiel, holds up Daniel as the example here, I think it sheds a little bit of light on how well Daniel might have been known, not only there in Babylon, but in the ancient world, and the even some of the interaction that maybe Daniel and Ezekiel would have had there in Babylon. Again, it's it's at least for me, and I've said this in previous texts as well, it's a reminder that the ancient world isn't as sort of a, such a poor place as sometimes we caricature it in our minds today. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, there's also a sort of uh, historical prejudice that we have towards older peoples as if they were dumber than us. Or right. We know so much now because we can look up something on Wikipedia. But <laughs> I mean, you know, actually, um, the, the tools that we have at our disposal today sometimes become handicaps because we rely upon them so much, we don't memorize as much scripture. Um, we don't have, uh, we're so distracted that in a lot of cases, we, we, uh, we maybe uh, confuse our ability to know so many things with wisdom, when in fact wisdom is something that is cultivated in a much more humble, prayerful, scriptural, meditational manner. Well, so with, with that thought then about wisdom and, you know, Ithabal having this wisdom and it being extolled, as we're saying, not in a sarcastic way, but in a true way, yet at the same time, this pagan king, it would seem, does not worship the one true Lord, the one true God. And, and thinking through, say, for the book of Proverbs, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In, in what sense does this prince have wisdom, and in what sense is he missing something? Right. That's a really good point. Um, I think, you know, one, one way of getting at it is perhaps thinking about how in Lutheran theology we speak of two kinds of righteousness. So there's the righteousness that is a gift from God for the sake of Christ and his blood and his work. And that is the righteousness that's received by faith. And then the other kind of righteousness is this active righteousness of obedience to the law of God. And so I would say then that according to the, uh, uh, the two different types of wisdom we might speak of, uh, Ithbael has that second kind of, you know, wisdom or righteousness, that he's able to, through his prudence and, um, uh, you know, worldly wisdom, I guess you'd say, able to be quite successful. But he's lacking the most important type of wisdom, which is the fear of the Lord. <laughs> even even the opposite, right? He's, yeah. He goes so far wrong uh, with the heavenly type of wisdom that he actually thinks that he's a god in himself. And that's perhaps a good reminder for us as Christians who who do have that first and I would say primary type of wisdom, that beginning of wisdom that that Solomon teaches in Proverbs, that having this worldly wisdom is not a bad thing. It is a gift of God that he did grant to this prince of Tyre, and of course he misused it as a as one who did not have the fear of the Lord. But for for we who do have that fear of the Lord, to seek after the the wisdom that would use wealth in a, you know, in a, a good earthly way, that's not a bad thing for us. And so I think maybe there's a, 
that's kind of thinking through him as a negative example, but seeing that that flip side for us as Christians, wanting that second type of wisdom as well. Yeah, I mean, and I think the book of Proverbs is excellent for that because it it shows us the wisdom and how to you know conduct ourselves in in such a way as to avoid temptation, and it 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 emphasizes good stewardship, frugality, you know, a lot of the things that perhaps um, aren't that used to be kind of part of our cultural heritage that we could take for granted because they were necessary <laughs> and we weren't, we didn't live in such a, a land of plenty. And so people had to be much more prudent with their resources of time, talent, and treasure. But uh, today this could be a blind spot for Christians that we overlook some of these more, you know, very important types of wisdom because ultimately they help us to be productive in our work in God's kingdom. Right. So using that wisdom for the purpose of glorifying God and serving the neighbor, sometimes we might miss that in our in our lives today. So a helpful, helpful reminder here in Ezekiel 28, and again, connected with the book of Proverbs, certainly. It, that's Verses 1 through 5 really describe who the prince is and, and what his ultimate problem is, this, his prideful heart that believes he's a god. And then in verse 6, the Lord begins to pronounce the judgment because of this, because you've made your heart like this— Here's what I'm going to do to you. What are some of the the features of the judgment that the Lord promises to bring against the Prince of Tyre? Right. So he's going to bring foreigners against him. And here, oh, well, it's going to be the most ruthless of the nations. And that is clearly, uh, seems to be Babylon. Um, Let me me, uh, read you from Deuteronomy 28, this description, this prophetic description that the Lord gave to his people, that there was going to be some nation that would eventually come upon them in judgment. And I, I, I mean, I'm not sure we can definitively say that this is Babylon, but it could be a type or a pattern. But listen, listen to this. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your lands, which the Lord your God has given you. Now that's of course directed towards the Israelites, but it it works the same way when Babylon comes to any particular area. And so Ithbal has placed tremendous trust in his own abilities and wealth but compared to Babylon, he is just a little bug that is going to be crushed. Mm. The Deuteronomy 28 reference there is striking, especially where the Lord says he'll swoop down like the eagle, which is an image that Ezekiel has used previously in this book in chapter 17. Babylon was pictured as an eagle. So it certainly fits. And and certainly Tyre at this point being along with, and we talked a little bit about this in introducing these oracles against Tyre, that Tyre receives, you know, almost three whole chapters compared to some that are very short. And Egypt, as we'll see in starting in chapter 29, is going to be the other really big chunk. Those two nations at this time are the ones that are going to be able to put up the biggest fight against Babylon. Yep. And, and so they, it would seem that that might be part of the reason why they receive such lengthy oracles of judgment, because Babylon at this moment in history is the Lord's chosen instrument yep. to execute his judgment. And so, yeah, I mean, I think even though, as you said, Deuteronomy 28 is certainly speaking to Israel— but we can see how it applies to Tyre at this moment in history through this text. Yeah. Yeah. And you just made another profound point, and that is, you know, that as hard, as hard as it is for us to get our head around, Babylon is the Lord's servant. 
And so in that sense, resistance to Babylon is resistance to the Lord. And now he's doing his alien work of judgment through Babylon. So he's not the servant in the same way that Christ is the servant. But he is nonetheless, um, the Lord is in control of all history, all nations. And, you know, it's such a striking image to think that the Lord is actually making use of these people that we would cons- rightly consider wicked. But he uses evil to bring about good. And this is the theology of the cross. Yeah, I mean, that's the question that Habakkuk deals with at length. Uh, we, we looked at that book in between Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel in our studies here in Sharper Iron. And, and of course, Jeremiah preaches that back in Judah that, you know, to Zedekiah, look, Babylon's coming, the Lord is sending Babylon, you need to surrender or you will die. And, and Zedekiah, of course, refuses to believe that. Again, that's that's part of what's happening in that parable that Ezekiel tells back in chapter 17. And that same thing shows up here in the oracles to the nations, which is, again, striking. And I think it, maybe as, as we talked about earlier about, you know, trying to get a handle on these texts for us as, as Christians today, you do see that what the Lord is doing to Israel at this moment through Babylon isn't just a, just a, no, a localized thing, but this is a, a worldwide thing that the Lord is doing. Babylon is serving as his servant, not just against Israel, but against all these nations, because that the Lord has that you know that worldwide purpose in mind of bringing blessing ultimately through His Christ to all people. Exactly, and notice that emphasis on well, you mentioned Habakkuk, and so how can you pass over by saying the righteous shall live by his faith, and or the one who is righteous by faith shall live? And note how in Deuteronomy twenty-eight, the Israelites trusted in their walls, and we've got Ithbaal trusting in his wealth and power and the Egyptians and Tyrians themselves trusting in their military strength. And so the only place where we must put our trust is First Commandment in the Lord God. Fear, love, and trust in Him above all other things. Now, this section, this verses 6 through 10, that's where the satire really does come through pretty strongly. As you, I think you pointed out, I would say verse 9 particularly, the, the picture there is of Ithabaal, you know, he's he's about to be executed, and are you going to tell them you're a god at that moment? That's where it really comes through pretty thick. It is. You know, and, and one other interesting thing, we're going to pick up in the next section some stuff that's like Genesis 1 through 3, Garden of Eden type stuff. Um, it's it's worth pointing out that he's, he said back in verse 2, I am a god, but then the Lord says, no, you're Adam, you're Adam, right? Mm-hmm. You're a man. And so you you have that fundamental difference in all of the universe between God and his creatures, which is spelled out perfectly clearly in in the creation account. Well, and, and not and not to get too far into what we'll see in the next section, but that's that was the problem with Adam is that instead of wanting to be the Adam, he wanted to be God instead. And and this yep. king has the same problem, and I suppose that's really the problem that we all have. Exactly, we all we all have this. Um, I mean, what is our favorite idol? It's self. Yeah. Right. <laughs> hence, hence the fundamental problem with, uh, I don't want to throw it out completely, but the fundamental problem with self-esteem is that uh, it can lead us to making ourself the center of the whole universe. Um, so uh, when in fact, we, the one who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Or, or even something like uh, independence. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a, that's a term that, that we Americans like to use particularly. And again, not to, to throw out everything that's there, but when we take it too far, the, I mean, the thought of independence flies in the face of, you know, a lot of things that Jesus says, like entering the kingdom like 
a little child. Yeah. Little children aren't independent, they're dependent. And I mean, yeah, so I think that's another, maybe that's a broader one, but that's one that we need to be careful with too. Well, I mean, yeah, we, we certainly can appreciate our Declaration of Independence politically, but we should have a more fundamental Declaration of Dependence spiritually. That's right. And, and so this, this king, this prince of Tyre, is struggling with that universal problem of humanity since Adam. Uh, what about uh, with this section closing out, verse 10, dying the death of the uncircumcised by the hands of foreigners? That's how this little section concludes. Seems to be a little climactic in the judgment that's spoken. What's, what's the, why is that the final judgment spoken there in verse 10? That's very interesting. The, uh, the Phoenicians did circumcise. It wasn't kind of this sign of a covenant with the Lord, but it was their, their practice. Um, I think one point of reference might be uh, the uncircumcised Philistine that David slew and left unburied on the battlefield in 1 Samuel 17. So I think the image is that uh, Ithbaal is not going to have a proper burial according to his cust- you know, country's customs, but he's going to just be slain like a random uncircumcised heathen on the battlefield. And again, to put that in contrast with what he's saying about himself, he's saying, I'm a God, I'm sitting in the seat of gods. And yet when it comes, and not only is he going to die, but he's going to die, at least probably in in his own mind, the worst death possible. Again, that that dethroning of not only him as a, a king in an earthly sense, but in his own heart thinking he's a God, uh, by the end of this section, there's there's no possibility that his claim can be true. Not at all. And, you know, burial practices were very important. Um, and so you've got in like the Iliad, for example, um, Achilles drags the body of Hector through the streets and everyone's outraged about this. And so I suspect that burial practices were very important for the Tyrians. Mm. So again, the, the judgment upon the king of Tyre for his pride, for his claiming to be God, That's what we get through verses 1 and 10. Now we're going to pick up a lament for the king of Tyre in the following verses, but we'll do that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Ezekiel chapter 28 with Pastor Carl Roth, and we will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, October 26th. We are studying Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 1 to 26 with Pastor Carl Roth. He serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, prior to the break, we looked at verses 1 through 10 of the chapter, the announcement of judgment upon the prince, the king of Tyre, and then paralleling what's been said to the city of Tyre. Now Ezekiel is given to take up a lament over the king of Tyre in verses 11 through 19. So we return to the text. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. 
You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. That's the lament over the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 19. Pastor Roth, let's start with some of these uh, similarities, these echoes of the creation account. You mentioned that, and I think there's a couple that come through pretty clearly. For example, Eden, and maybe a few others that are a bit more hidden, but are certainly there. What are what are some of these parallels that we need to pick out from Genesis one through three? Well, you do get the language of creation. So, Kabara, um, he is he was created. Um, that's another example. Um, you do have. Um, images uh, in the Garden of Eden of, of its um, not only its fruitfulness, but also what good gold, good minerals are there, things like that. Um, you have the cherub, which is interesting, the, uh, the one that was placed outside of the garden to bar the way to paradise afterward, but was the, was the cherub there before? Um, it's kind of hard to say. Um, he might have just been repositioned. Um, so I think that I'm not sure exactly how to draw a one-to-one, you know, line between these two. It's, it's in some places, it seems like there's some mixed metaphors, mm. but the echoes are certainly there. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll take a look at those as we come to them. I, perhaps I should have started with just the fact this is called a lamentation. Oh, yeah. What, I mean, we've, we've seen lamentations well, in the book of Ezekiel, and we've seen lamentations in the scriptures. What, what's kind of the character of this lamentation? Yeah, in some ways it seems to be a bit peculiar because there there doesn't seem to be a lot of sorrow over the fall of the king, um, but 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 I think you can read it in that way. Now, more than anything, it's a vindication of the Lord's judgment upon the man. So it spells out exactly why Ithbel had this coming. So that that's first and foremost. But I think the lamentation is that this man was such a special creation of God and had unsurpassed beauty and gifts. And so for him to have turned to the way of unrighteousness is something to be lamented over. It is, uh, it is the same thing with the fall of the creation. Um, the goodness of the creation is never undermined by sinful mankind's actions. It is still a good world. God did not create us for death. He did not create Ithbael for unrighteousness and destruction, but rather he was an anointed cherub. He could have been some, some, you know, it seems like he could have possibly had he turned to a different path or followed the path upon which he had been set, been a great servant of the Lord. Oh. So I think that that is, it's an implicit lamentation then. 
Right. So that I mean, it's a almost like a, a tragedy of sorts mm-hmm. to to see yep. what and to think about what could have been, but because of his pride, because of his you know calling himself a god, he took all of these beautiful gifts from God and and wasted them. It is you know I mean just thinking about that and the language here in this lamentation about how you know for example. Verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub, and then very specifically, the Lord says, I placed you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, yeah, That's, again, striking language, reminiscent of what we were talking about earlier with Nebuchadnezzar being the servant of the Lord at this time. The king of Tyre is, is said to be in a very similar light. This was the Lord's doing to give him these things, uh, but he wasted it. Exactly. You know, one other really interesting thing about this section is that it's uh, no longer direct speech to Ithbael but it is this sort of past prophetic, because it doesn't seem that he's fallen yet, right? I don't think Ezekiel is writing this retrospectively and saying, this is all the stuff that's happened. But the Lord had said in verse 10, I've spoken, (laughs) declares the Lord. Therefore, whatever the Lord says is going to happen. So like so many of the prophecies throughout the the Old Testament, they're given in the past tense, um, but they're still to happen in the future. And that's because whatever the Lord ordains and says is as good as done. So let's talk a, a little bit of some of these references that are found in Genesis. The matter of Eden, the Garden of God. You were in Eden, the Garden of God. Again, we want to be careful about, I suppose, the, the one-to-one correspondence, but the, the thought there is that the Lord set the king of Tyre in the just the right place sort, mm-hmm. of, sort of picture. Yeah, and, and he was, in a sense, a second Adam. Um, I mean, he, he, he was an Adam put into this particular place with all these gifts in this this not— it's obviously not a perfect creation as it would have been in the original Eden, but nonetheless, it's described in these wonderful, beautiful terms. Um, so yeah, he, he has every advantage and, and now he has a choice to make. Right. What about the, and this maybe takes us on a slight detour away from the Genesis references, but the, these precious stones yeah. that are mentioned show up in other places in scripture. What, what should we make of which ones there are here and some of the cross references that maybe we would find? Right. So, the priest had on his garb, you know, all these different jewels. And, and in the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of, the, uh, of Ezekiel, the, it seems that the scribes must have filled it out to match the 12 stones that were representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, but at, at any rate, so you do have that imagery there. You have it in the book of Revelation um, with the, each of the, the gates being you know, having one particular stone. Um, I, I, again, I'm a little mystified as to how to connect this to those two examples, except in the sense that this is sort of uh, an idealized version of kind of the best that creation has to offer. And then it really is pointing forward to the new creation as the book of Revelation shows. Um, But I don't know if I can say any more. Sure, sure. It is it is hard to to make a one to one correspondence. It doesn't. I don't think that Ezekiel is trying to say that the the prince of Tyre was somehow a a priest of the true God or something like that. It doesn't seem to be that 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 would be the the correspondence. But maybe again, just this larger picture of the Lord giving this prince all the gifts needed to to be a servant of the Lord in the in its fullest sense to have that true wisdom, the fear of the Lord, and his rejection of it. Which, which I think maybe helps us with the connection to Adam. And I think you brought this up on the, the first side of the program. You know, on that day you were created, very, mm-hmm. you know, echoing that language of this is, and, and to be created, 
again, is you're, you're either the creator or you're the created. And so here we've got that sharp line drawn again. And maybe this is the place to, to draw out more of those similarities between what happens, what's given to Adam and what happens to Adam in the Garden of Eden and how that applies to the, the king of Tyre here. Yeah. So, I mean, the first Adam um, was given paradise and even could have eaten from the tree of life. But instead, when the serpent tempts him, he uh, with the with the well, he tempts Eve, but Adam's standing there and Adam should have jumped in and protected his wife. So he's really the one responsible. Um, this this ability to eat something that would make him like God, knowing good and evil was uh, a temptation that he could not resist. And we see the same thing happening then with Ithbal, that he has a path of righteousness in which he's been given to follow with all these different gifts. Um, but he is tempted by this desire to elevate himself into a godlike status. So there's tremendous similarity there. Hmm. What about this matter of the the cherub that shows up, say, in, in verse 14? I mean, a, a cherub, you know, we're picturing an angel here. What what does that mean, you are an anointed guardian cherub? Well, um, I mean, this is an interesting text because it's, it's based on the Septuagint. Um, and so it, it kind of makes him into this protector on the holy mountain of, of God. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it, it seems that um, after the king, the king sinned, perhaps there was some other cherub that drove him out from, from this abode and cast him down to earth. Um, I find it to be a rather mysterious passage myself. Very much so. <laughs> I, I agreed. Yeah, very much so. Very mysterious, and 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 perhaps you know, I mean, mysterious to the, to the point that there there have been those in in yeah. history of Christian interpretation, and I think I mean, kind of just as in our conversation, I can see why in a, fully that you know we're talking about the fall of Adam and the fall mm -hmm. of this king, and that, I mean the way we're talking about it, pride and being cast down from a yeah. high place. Yeah. This text often gets applied to the fall of of Satan, yes, and and read in that way, and then you add this cherub language, and it, I mean, it's like, well, yeah, it sounds yeah, sounds like yeah. it. So what what do we? I mean, how how do we see perhaps the fall of Satan in this text, and and what do, what do you think? Yeah, so uh, in the history of Christian interpretation since Origen um, or of Alexandria from uh, the second and third centuries, uh, this. Uh, this king of Tyre has been associated with Lucifer, the brilliant one, the son of the morning, which is uh, mentioned in Isaiah 14, 12. And, and there, it's really important to point out the connections between this section and Isaiah 14. Um, those, you could really fruitfully read them together. And so then they, uh, the interpretation then is that, the, that this is trying to recount the original fall of Satan, um, who'd previously been one of the cherubim attending the throne of God. So it's possible there, there was in Ezekiel's time a tradition of the angelic fall closely associated with the fall of humanity, but we don't have anything else historically to support that. Hmm. So um, I, I think that um, I exegetically would not feel comfortable reading that out of this text, but I can completely see why someone would. Okay. All right. So we want to we want to be careful. Then we we certainly shouldn't say that Ezekiel twenty eight is about the fall of Satan and only about the fall of Satan. It's certainly not. There's a historical reality concerning this king Ithbel that's being discussed here that that relates very theologically to our experience as human beings, to what happened to Adam, to what happens to us still, and our temptations toward pride and and setting up ourselves as gods. If there is a correlation to 
what happens to Satan, that's going to be maybe a, we're going to have to make a few more connections from a, a couple more texts before Ezekiel 28 applies to that. Is that, I mean, is that a fair thing to say? Well, I mean, a basic principle of biblical interpretation is that we let the clearer passages right. illuminate the more um, obscure. And, and we have to be honest that there are plenty of passages that are darkened to us. The, the fault is not with the Word of God, it's with our own lack of understanding, and to some extent, our it, the historical remoteness. But, I mean, we have plenty of things in the New Testament that describe the fall of the angels and, and Satan, uh, the evil angels. Um, and, and so I think we can read it this as sort of a description of what led to that fall, maybe kind of to fill out the details a little bit. But certainly we would not use this as a, a doctrinal proof text for that. Sir, so those those New Testament texts that, that would be among the more clearer passages would be, for example, like Luke 10, where Jesus says, he, I saw Satan fall uh, like lightning from heaven, combined with maybe like Revelation 12, where, where yeah. the dragon sweeps down mm -hmm. the stars from the from the heavens? Yes, and then also in Second Peter, when the Lord says he didn't even spare the, the angels who rebelled against them, but put them up uh, in gloomy chains of darkness. So I, I think there's a good handful of passages that help establish our demonology and Satanology, but um, this, this is not where I would go first. Certainly, certainly. But maybe some some echoes or some, mm -hmm. some parallels that, that would, again, maybe fill out what's not spoken in those clearer passages to, to provide a, a larger picture. And I suppose we, we shouldn't, we wouldn't be surprised to find that there would be parallels in, in terms of the temptation away from the will of God. Because with, you know, with the angels, and, and sometimes we forget this, but there, with the angels, there's still that very clear line. You're either creator or creature, and angels fall into the creature category along with us. And so to have that same temptation be a part of, of both the experiences of, of humanity and then what happens to uh, the, the evil angels, it shouldn't surprise us, I think. No, it shouldn't. And it's really a, a, an, an unanswerable question as to what did the angels lack. Um, and and I because they had the presence of God, which seems to be everything you could ever want. Um, so there's there is an insanity, I think, to sin. Mm. That is that we we are um, <laughs> destroying ourselves right. by by it. Right. Well, I mean, I think that the same thing is true for the king of Tyre, for Adam, for us. You know, what what did Adam lack? What what, what did this king lack? What do we lack? And and the yeah, I think insanity. The I think I've said the irrationality of mm -hmm. sin. It just it just doesn't make sense. Right. It's chaos, not order. Right. Let's see what what else in this in this section, Pastor Roth. We have a, a few more verses to cover about Sidon, and then a, a promise of restoration. But other other highlights from this section concerning the the lamentation over the king of Tyre. Before we move on, I just think that if you do a careful reading of the things that he did uh, to to show that he was unrighteous, he had been blameless from the day that he had created. Just as now, I don't think this means sinless, but right. but I mean he according to the. Um, you know, the kingdom of the left hand or the righteousness according to the law. He had been blameless, um, much as Paul later would say, according to the law, blameless. So he had lived this outwardly wonderful life, but then unrighteousness was found in him. And so in the, in the context of trade, he's filled with violence. So, um, so this desire for more wealth leads ultimately then to harming others in order to enrich himself, exploiting others. Um, he becomes proud because of his beauty 
and he corrupted his wisdom. So again, you mentioned that irrationality of sin, that um, the lust that we might have for certain false gods on earth, idols, especially mammon and sexuality, lead us to lose our senses. And then ultimately that affects our behavior because we, we follow the way of our flesh rather than the spirit. And, and for this, then the, the judgment is decreed, verses 18 and 19 describe it, and everyone's going to look at the king of Tyre and just be appalled, much like the judgment that was spoken to the city as a whole ends very similarly. So that takes us through verse 19. In verse 20, we turn to another oracle against a nation, an oracle against Sidon this time. Just to briefly remind us a little bit of, of historical context, I think you said a few things earlier about Tyre and Sidon being paired together, but before we read this, just a reminder of some of that context. Where is Sidon? What should we know about it before we read this, this section? Yeah, I mean, Sidon actually is first mentioned in Genesis. I um, thought I had this note somewhere, but um, I think it's Zebulun is going to have his his land stretched to um, Sidon, but it's a seaport um, and, and was, was quite famous in the ancient world. Um, and again, Tyre and Sidon are oftentimes paired together, but it was also like Tyre quite successful. Right. Is, is, am I right that Jezebel was from Sidon? Is that, or was she from Tyre? It seems to me she was from that area, which is not really related to our discussion, I suppose, but it may be just yeah. another point of contact. So, yeah, let's... it's it's actually Sidon does get mentioned independently of Tyre quite a bit um, earlier in the scriptures. So I think that's where I I certainly got the sense that Tyre is younger, okay, than Sidon. Well, but, let's go ahead. No, I, I mean I just think what one interesting thing here is that Sidon really gets very vague and uh, you know not not uh, it's the judgment upon them is actually quite brief and vague. So this section doesn't, it's not as um, artistically rich as the previous section, and it's just kind of a generic judgment. Certainly, certainly. I think we'll see that just from reading the text. We're picking up Ezekiel 28 now at verse 20. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face towards Sidon and prophesy against her and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and manifest my holiness in her. For I will send pestilence into her and blood into her streets. And the slain shall fall in her midst by the sword that is against her on every side. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And that takes us through verse 23 of the chapter. And, and as you said, Pastor Roth, it is it was certainly harsh words of judgment, but nothing that stands out there that's particularly unique in the judgment against Sidon. That could have been spoken against anyone, it sounds like. Right. I think one of the things that jumps out, though, is the manifesting of God's holiness. Um, so this is the Lord's presence descending upon the city, and um, God's holiness cannot tolerate iniquity and unrighteousness. And so it consumes everything around it when the Lord has set out to manifest His holiness there. Mm. Uh, briefly, before we leave this section behind, because what happens in verses 24 through 26 is a bit of a, a breath of fresh air in the midst of these oracles. Tyre and Sidon, as you said, get paired together. And, mm. and given the judgment that's spoken against both of them in these chapters, uh, perhaps just a, a reference to, to some of the New Testament places, the one that stands out is where Jesus says, you know, if Tyre and Sidon had seen these things, they would have repented. Yeah, right. So, um, yeah, he, he actually, um, he's gone uh, in Matthew 11. Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent 
Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in tired sun, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And then he goes on to castigate Capernaum um, and, and compare them with Sodom. Mm. So if, if, if the people of Sodom had seen all of the things Jesus had done, they would have repented, and Sodom would still be on earth. Um, but he says, I'll tell you, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So our Lord picks up these, these themes from Ezekiel um, and then also Genesis and um, uses them as these illustrations to emphasize to the people who are hearing his message that the severity of the, uh, or the, uh, I guess, the, the, the uh, decisiveness necessary that you must repent. Just like in Luke 13, when he talks about the Tower of Siloam following, falling down, you know, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. So this, this, uh, the war- use, the use of these examples would, would have been very powerful for those who knew the Old Testament stories and would have really been back on their heels like, whoa, <laughs> I mean, we better we better put on some sackcloth and ashes and get busy repenting and believe. Certainly, certainly. And, and reading these chapters sheds more light for us as Christians reading that today. What does it mean to, to receive a judgment worse than Tyre and Sidon? Check out Ezekiel 26 to 28, and you'll, you'll find out just how serious and decisive Jesus really is there. We'll pick up the rest of our text here, which again is a promise of restoration in the midst of these oracles of judgment, beginning now in Ezekiel 28, verses 24 and following. And for the house of Israel, there shall be no more a briar to prick or a thorn to hurt them among all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God. When I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they shall dwell in their own land that I gave to my servant Jacob, and they shall dwell securely in it, and they shall build houses and plant vineyards. They shall dwell securely when I execute judgments upon all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God." That's the rest of our text for today. That was Ezekiel 28, verses 24 to 26. Pastor Rod, we've got about five minutes here on the morning. What are some of the, the highlights of this promise of restoration that we need to see? Well, one thing is that it is, for the original context, in relation to the nations around them. So the Lord is saying, I am using Babylon right now as this tool of mine to level all these nations, and actually execute judgment upon the ones that have been oppressors to, towards Israel. Um, so even in the context of judgment, we can see the Lord looking out for his people. The second is that, um, well, there's the knowledge of the Lord, right? The Lord does show and prove that he's with his people by action. So he does not do this just abstractly, but actually will show them through the fulfillment of his promises in the restoration under uh, Cyrus the Persian, that they will be able to come back into the, the city and rebuild and enjoy his presence among them. But notice how, again, manifesting his holiness is different here than it than it is. The effects of it are different than in the judgment upon Sidon, because the Lord can come in holiness in order to sanctify and save his people, but to his foes, his holiness is poison and destruction. 
But for the Lord's chosen, his beloved, his holiness actually then will forgive their sins and sanctify them and reconsecrate them for his purposes. One of the things that, that stands out, particularly in the context of this being close to the judgment against the king of Tyre and the echoes there of the opening chapters of Genesis, in verse 24, that mention of no more briars, no more thorns, sounds a lot like a, a reversal of the curse that was spoken in Genesis 3. It really does. And I mean, we have to we have to first read this in its historical context, that the Lord is definitely speaking to, right now, Judah, and is going to actually do things in history to preserve the remnant, to, um, to continue the Messianic line. But I think so much of this also should be read forward in the sense of the book of Revelation. And look at all the new creation language there, and how there will no longer be lamentations and mourning and crying um and and the there's paradise restored through christ and his blood and our entrance into that kingdom yeah certainly a picture of of moving forward the matter of of building houses planting vineyards sounds like entry into the promised land language and and also then again thinking forward to the the new creation our entry into the the final promised land the the new jerusalem the new creation new heaven new earth pastor roth with just about two minutes left on the morning help us summarize see these these texts and apply them to ourselves as christians that, that point us to jesus christ yeah i think the the first uh, major point is is that uh, pride goeth before the fall and so uh, ithabel is just this wonderful example of someone who had it all from the Lord, and yet nonetheless turns the created gifts that he has into idols rather than returning thanks to his creator and using those gifts for God's purposes. So um, we should read, um, again, Jesus will emphasize humility so much in his own ministry that these sort of examples uh, can, can um, guide us not only in heavenly wisdom of knowing where to put our priorities, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, but also in how to order our lives in, in a God-pleasing manner. That we, the minute we start to sense that created gifts are, we're becoming too attached to them, we need to relativize them and realize that they're servants, not masters. The only master is the Lord. The second, um, and I think, of course, most important point is that the Lord wants his people, ultimately after, um, after they've suffered for a while, to dwell securely. And so the Israelites, just like the church, must go through this period of uh, discipline and purging and, you know, repentance um, uh, as we dwell in the midst of a sinful world. But finally, the Lord wants to give us this security. And, and the security that we have as Christians is knowing, baptized into Christ, nothing can separate us from God's love. And so that is the basis upon which each day we live in repentance, striving to put to death the old Adam and rising up to newness of life. Pastor Carl Roth is pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 1 to 26. Pastor Roth, thanks for being our guest today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel or comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Use the open mic feature on the app to send up to a 60-second message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.